Hi, this is Ron Chapman, and recently in a series of workshops, several people asked me if I could record a little bit of background and context for the 12 steps as I understand them today. So I'm going to do that by starting and acknowledging that I'm 29 years in 12-step recovery. Details beyond that perhaps aren't too important because I don't know that the steps necessarily are bound by the nature of an addiction or the nature of a problem. They tend to work regardless. So let me just say this. I'm at seeingtrue.com, and if you'd like to learn more about some of these things, including what I call progressive recovery, which I'll explain in a moment, go check it out there. Enough about me. Progressive recovery is how I describe what has to happen to people who are in longer-term recovery. The first time round with steps, it's practiced a certain way, and over time, we find that the way we practice those 12 steps has to change and deepen because the nature of the malady most of us face is likewise one that can potentially deepen over time. So it's not uncommon for people with extended, really, really valuable recovery in 12 steps. It's not uncommon for them to demonstrate that they have practiced them those steps many, many times. In fact, at one point, someone was telling me they had been told they only needed to do one fourth step inventory. And I just shook my head and said, man, I'm, I probably needed 20 of them over the years, if not more, to really get to the root of some things. So let's talk about why that's important very briefly, and then a word about me, and then we'll talk about those 12 steps. It's my understanding that the maladies we're up against, whether substance abuse, alcoholism, food addiction, process addictions like love or sex, it's like a downward moving escalator that is always moving even though we don't know it. And we're on that escalator. Slowly but surely, over time, it will pull us downward to a basement, presumably, that is filled with things we don't really want. And in that basement, things will go very, very badly. The only way we can avoid the movement of the escalator, which is almost imperceptible, is we have to be moving against the direction of the escalator. And one guy sort of uh, punnily said, oh, by taking the steps. And, of course, that's true. Here's what's perhaps even more important over time is that, in fact, it experiences or I have experienced that there are a series of escalators that as we reach a certain point in recovery, we find that we may have a hiatus followed by a next level of practice that has to take us deeper. And that process does not seem to end as best as I can tell. We just keep finding a new level at which we need to practice. The danger, of course, is complacency because it gets kind of comfortable along the way. Then that escalator begins to take us back downward toward very unpleasant results. So I'm convinced, to use language from AA's big book, I am convinced that my progressive recovery is essential to offset a progressive disease and that I don't have any better options. So I do this work because it's necessary. So let me talk a little bit about the 12 steps. Typically, when we first come in to 12-step recovery, we're driven by something, some situation, some circumstances, which cause us to start working the steps, assuming we get to that point. We start working the steps because we have necessity staring at us. 
And so we jump in and we work it at the level that we can best at that moment. Mostly it's a behavioral one. You know, the line we often hear is, you know, I just need to stop being a jerk. And, and, you know, it's a great start. It takes away enough of the guilt and the shame, cleans up enough of the debris that, in fact, we can be solidly sober, clean, abstinent, whatever our language is. And, and so that's wonderful. I mean, it's a great starting point. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But as more is revealed, again, to quote the big book, we begin to see that there's another piece of language in there that's really important that says a long period of reconstruction lies ahead, which is all too often thought to only apply to the ninth step amends process. But in fact, it is my experience that it applies to the entire 12-step recovery process. So assuming we've done one or several, what I commonly find is someone arrives at seven years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, clean, sober, abstinent. And they begin to realize there's something more that needs attention, which is a sure sign of the need for this next iteration of step work. So here's how I've come to understand the steps. It always begins with step zero. Now, the way I first heard that in Albuquerque, New Mexico, it was pretty simple. Step zero is this shit's got to stop. Now, that's very consistent with what we hear about uh, you know, being sick and tired of being sick and tired or hitting bottom or exhausting ourselves or being compelled. Regardless, it seems like there's never enough willingness to do the next step work, whether it's a first or a tenth time, except if we have become convinced that it's going to be necessary because something's not right or we're suffering or there's breakdowns in our life. So let me go back for just a moment before I go on to step one. It's so important to realize that we actually generally, we who are in recovery, set our standards way too low. Now, why is that? And why do I say that? Pretty simply, because our point of reference is not a really solid point of reference. I heard it at a speaker's meeting one day, actually a conference, where the speaker said that his entire life had been filled with EMTs and cops showing up on the front porch, even when he was a kid. And so when he got clean and sober and the cops and ENT stopped showing up, he said, oh, see, this is it. This is happy, joyous, and free. And I've arrived. Well, of course, that was foolish because he'd only begun the process, but it was a darn sight better than where he'd come from. So then he realized that there were these broken things in his life, so he cleaned those up. And then he said, oh, I've arrived. I'm happy, joyous, and free, only to find that there were deeper challenges to be dealt with, and on and on and on. So at any moment in time, our point in reference is very, very limited by what we have experiential reality with. The reason that is important is because of a phrase in the 12 steps that talks about being restored to sanity. At first, we think of that restoration as being relieved of the compulsion for whatever addiction or process problem we have. It's become very evident to me that that is a limit of both our experience and our imagination. I think, and my experience says, that these steps are designed to restore us to a state of wholeness that we perhaps do not even remember or perhaps have never experienced. That the very nature of who we are, the nature of creation as it's manifest in us, the nature of these steps are designed to take us to a place of wholeness or oneness if you're a 
spiritually religious person or connectedness if you're a humanist uh, or to rediscover our true self or our soul, that what this sanity is suggesting is that there's a much greater possibility that lies ahead of us. But as they say in the rooms, I believe that you believe, which means I have no way of getting my head around that. And yet, it's useful to consider the possibility that where this step work could take us is a space that we simply have no knowledge or even an imagination to conceive of. I say that on the front end because of the tendency to get comfortable and complacent and thus to fail to really take full advantage of where these things can take us. It's no small matter. And in fact, at worst, what I find happening is people getting stagnant. Even though their life is much, much improved, it becomes stagnant. And then they end up slipping and sliding their way back down and back out. Uh, in some cases, again, to some really, really unpleasant paces. If the only thing that explains why it is that you can hear the common story of Charlie or Jane, who achieved 22 years in this program, and then suddenly they got loaded or uh, they took an adventure or uh, ended up in some awful place or in some cases even killed themselves, which is not unheard of in recovery. So very, very serious matter. The proposition is that there's far more to be realized than we have heretofore thought. And the steps practiced at depth over time in a repetitive fashion can make that reality come true. And you don't have to believe it for yourself, but this is my experience at this stage at 29 years into the process. So let's go back to step zero. Step zero, this has got to stop. It's a mess. It's painful. It's problematic. I'm willing because I no longer want what I'm experiencing, which brings us to step one. Step one proposes powerless, powerlessness. And now at first, we tend to start that with the substance or the process that we have difficulty with or the person if we're a relationship at it. But over time, what we begin to see is that there are more and more and more things that I'm powerless over. Um, you would not always know this from the way people talk when they say things like, well, uh, my sponsor tells me I'm not responsible for the first thought, but I'm responsible for the second. And it's like, if you look at the evidence, that's not true. What's true is that sometimes the thoughts have their way with us and we're along for a ride. All you have to do to see that is to think about some time when your brain got spun up on some problem and you got caught up in, in a whirlwind in your head that you couldn't get off of. Uh, and it ran its course for however long it ran its course. Some of us can spend days, weeks, months in those places. So as you begin to look around and, and take honest stock of your life, you begin to see that there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't have power over. It's not clear why. We certainly try hard. And many of the folks I know in recovery have got incredible, incredible capacity for trying. And, that's simultaneously incredible, incredible capacity for suffering. So, so, so the point is that the first proposition is this problem we're facing, even if we don't know what it is and can't name it, we're powerless over. There is no human power, not me, not you, not anyone, that can solve this problem because it is bigger than you or me. That then sets up steps two and three. Step 
two essentially says came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Step three is to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to that power. So step one says we're powerless, we're screwed, we're stuck, we are beyond our own human aid or any other human aid. Two and three say there is a power, and it's not you, and you could perhaps become willing to allow that power to work on this. There's a really important principle here that I've learned from the agnostics and the atheists. And if you think very long about it, you realize that apparently, since this solution can work for them as well, apparently what they believe in or don't believe in doesn't seem to matter. They find access to power by practicing the steps in the same way that someone who believes in something does. So if you study the literature in these programs pretty carefully, you'll see that there's not much discussion about what the nature of God is or higher power or higher, higher power or the force or higher self, whatever you'd like to call it, Tao, there's very little discussion of what it is. They only say that it is there, and you need to come to a place where you're willing to allow it, whatever it may be, to work with you. That's step three, turning our will and our lives over. That's a big piece of the equation, but it's driven by understanding that you have no better choice, that you're cornered, and that you're going to have to do this work, whether you really like it or not, because life in it is really pretty irrelevant. And the agnostics and atheists teach us that it doesn't so much matter what we believe in. What matters is that we learn about our relationship to this power, higher power. That sets up step four and five, which is where we take a moral inventory, much misunderstood, I might add. And step five, where we discuss or admit these things that we've found in the inventory. But let me go back here. Most people use this inventory process in four and five. They use it as a essentially behavioral inventory. Here's where I'm bad. Here's where I want to be good. In fact, the language in AA's big book says that what we're looking for is what blocks us off from the power. So let's, let's connect the dots here. I'm screwed. I have no capacity to solve this problem. There is power. Therefore, steps four and five, let's see if we can find where I'm blocked off from the power. That puts step four and five in a completely different light. I'm not looking for my behavioral failures now. Now, early on in your first go-round with the steps, cleaning up the behavioral stuff, as I said, is just fine. There is no problem at all with that. But there comes a moment when you're going to have to look more deeply. And that looking more deeply goes into the very important part of the classic four-column inventory, as it's described in the fourth step in the big book of AA, where it says that we're going to look for how things affect us, and we're going to try and come to see what our part in the pattern is. So it's an invitation to go beyond behavior. Let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, that you tend to be, let's say you're female, and let's say that you tend to become bitchy on occasion with your loved ones. Well, and this is actual real-world example I'm getting ready to use. So you start with, okay, I'm going to stop being bitchy to my, to my loved ones. 
And then you're going to go a little more deeply and start trying to learn how to be patient with them and love. It's all behavioral. It's all good. It's all progress. But eventually, some will come to realize that, in fact, what they're up against is that their family's dependence on them makes them feel responsible for things that are overwhelming to them and perhaps to the neglect of themselves. And their response of being bitchy is a response of fearing or experiencing that that responsibility is overwhelming to them, that it may, in fact, be deleterious to their well-being and perhaps even their sobriety, abstinence, cleanness, again, whatever uh, situation you're working with. So now all of a sudden we're looking at my part not being I'm bitchy. We're looking at my part being that I feel a profound sense of responsibility and it's not working well for me. That's a whole different blockage to power, if you will. For a guy, we might say something like, this is not at all uncommon. A guy, perhaps with a less than optimal relationship with his mom, which for people in recovery is not that uncommon, let's say that along the way he took on being responsible for his mom's well-being. Let's say that dad checked out, he's a drunk, he left, he died, whatever, and at 14 years old, the boy has to take on essentially the household, mom, siblings, etc. Well, that creates a whole problematic dynamic in terms of relationships, and no question it would enter into any future love relationship because it was an early and significant imprint. These are the kinds of things, those are just relational in nature, um, but they happen in all kinds of all kinds of ways that uh, we perhaps don't realize. There's a there's a line in in the literature, twelve step literature, that says sometimes as we look deeply into these patterns that block us off from power, that we will see patterns that underlie the story of our lives, and that does indeed seem to be breakthrough territory for most of us when we get down to this step four, step five, looking much much more deeply into what blocks us off. So let's go back. Step zero. Screwed. Step one, I have no power, no human power. I can't make this deal work. Steps two and three say there is a power. It doesn't matter what you believe in it. It does matter that you make a decision that you're going to work with this or let this power work with you. Steps four and five then say, where am I blocked off from the power that will restore me to sanity, which again is more than just the addiction. It has to do with our fundamental wellness well-beingness, wholeness, etc. That sets up six, steps six and seven. Six is becoming willing to ask this power for help. Step seven is asking this power for help. So if I'm, if I'm screwed and have no ability to solve my own problem and there's a power and I'm clear there's a blockage, for example, being responsible for others, then six and seven say, ask for help with it because you're not going to be able to fix it yourself because it's bigger than you. Huh. It makes perfectly good sense. My my longtime mentor and sponsor says that these things run through us like a stain through marble. And anything that's going to alter that stain is going to have to be way bigger than me. Hence the need for offering ourselves to be worked with and have this 
power, whatever it may be, deal with what blocks us off. Steps eight and nine, amends making steps, finding out who we owe an amend to. Step nine, making those amends. Again, the first time through the steps, these are typically behavioral. I stole money, I need to pay it back. I lied, I need to stop lying, I need to make it right. I injured someone, I need to do what I can to make the injury right. All good work, absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. And yet it eventually brings us to this deeper set of problems. Let's go back to the bitchiness example. Well, let's use another example. I hate to keep going to that one for fear that it will uh, <laughs> it will sound like a positional statement I'm taking. Let's go to another one. Let's say that you're a guy who believes that um, you must show up in the world as a strong person for your employees, for your families, etc., and that you're attached to being strong so much so that you're invulnerable. And as a result, you've had relational breakdowns. So let's talk about that. So those relational breakdowns have to be set right. Let's say your kids are distant from you. Well, you're going to need to amend that. You're going to need to step into that space. But the eventual amends making is when one, this guy, stops being invulnerable, where you start taking deliberate steps to be vulnerable to expose yourself, to put it out there, as some might say. And it's in that act of participating in a new idea rather than the old idea. It's in that fashion that we begin to find a new way of being, or a new way of being finds us. If you put it in the context of this blockage to power, so we're blocked off from power that will solve our problem, that will take us back to sanity and wholeness, we have to figure out what that is so that we can ask for help with it. And then steps eight and nine become participating actively in the solution. So that if I'm this guy who's invulnerable, every time I approach my kids, say, for example, and I open myself up so they can see what's going on inside me, every time I show up and get very close, uh, that's actually living in a way that is consistent with a new idea rather than the old invulnerable idea. So by now, what it proposes is that this will have cleared away blockages. Then we go into steps 10 and 11, which are often referred to as maintenance steps, and there is no problem with that. But there's a couple of important pieces of information. 10, if you buy this proposition that we are blocked off and that we're trying to clear the blockages, step 10 says not as commonly practiced that I will fix my screw-ups, rather that I will continue to watch for these blockages as they arise. If I'm this guy I'm talking about, I'll continue to watch for invulnerability. When it shows up, I will ask this power to remove it at once. I'll tell another human being. Then I will make an amend if need be. If I haven't done any damage to someone, something, the amend I must make is to come back into this vulnerability. That is the new idea rather than the old idea. And then it says resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we could help. That's big book language. That means come back to the now. You've cleaned it up. The blockage has been dealt with as much as you can. Come back here and now. Start over. And some of you are probably saying, well, goodness, I could do 10 steps all day long. And the answer is you're absolutely right. That's true of most all of us.
That's part of the beauty of this continued cleaning process. It's useful to remember that the 10th step is what it says specifically in AA's big book is that it's for growing in understanding and effectiveness. So it's about deepening the cleaning of our channel, you know, our spiritual channel, if you will, the, the soul of us, and, and allowing more and more to pour forth. Okay, so then we come to step 11, prayer and meditation. <laughs> A lot of praying going on, not much meditating. Um, that's partly because we seem to like to talk a lot. We're a talky crowd in recovery. But let's connect 11 back to the problem. Okay, I'm screwed. I don't have the power to solve it. There is a power, steps two and three. Turn your life and will over to it, whatever it may be. Stop thinking you can solve it. Jump into steps six and seven. Ask for help. This power will help. Eight and nine, participate in the removal of the blockages. Ten, continue to deal with the blockages to power. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only knowledge for his will for us and the power to carry that out. Now, whether you believe in a God or not is beside the point. It doesn't seem to matter. I know that's offensive to some, but apparently higher power, whatever it is, is bigger than our opinions of it. So step 11 says, plug into power, conscious contact, as much as you can. Use whatever awareness tools you can come up with, prayer, meditation, chanting, walking meditation, dialoguing with others, writing, journaling, breath work. There's an endless list of things we can do that can connect us to the power which will solve our problem and restore us to sanity which we cannot even conceive of. No wonder prayer and meditation is important. It is the deliberate attempt to connect up to the power that is the solution. Now, a lot of people like to talk about step 12. It's very ego-gratifying and very necessary. In service work, working with others, um, practicing principles in all our affairs. I, I, that is a wonderful space, and, and I, I honor it. I realize it's very helpful. And yet, ultimately, as we practice this progressive recovery, as we deepen our recoveredness, our spiritual connection, what I have observed in me and others is that the 12th step begins to take care of itself, that there is a natural pouring forthness that takes place when the channel within me is clear, when the blockages have been dealt with and removed by this power, whatever it may be. I guess I should say at this point, too, that there are some who like to conceive of this power as being the higher or highest self, something that is clearly larger than my egoic self. Regardless of what you believe in it, the evidence suggests that any number of manifestations of good will appear via the 12th step if the channel has been made clear. Uh, and to be clear, <laughs> it's not us clearing the channel. We're simply participating in the channel clearing process. I do want to say this about that. It appears to me, based on my experience, that this world, this, process, this spiritual design, this, this, this power creation, whatever it is, it appears to be designed to restore us and to facilitate the removal of blockages. 
So it's not as if we're going against the nature of the universe or the nature of God or the nature of power or force or Tao. It's that we are bringing ourselves into alignment with the nature of the way it works and that the consequence of that is that it does work. Famous, famous line. I've heard it so many times. It's amusing now. Someone will come in after difficulty, suffering, in and out, problems, and they'll actually work the steps. And you'll hear them say, damn, this stuff really works. It does really work really well if we're willing to practice them at depth over time. So one more time, just because <laughs> well, some of us have a lot of unlearning to do, so I'm going to repeat it once more. Here's our problem. Step zero. I'm screwed. This has got to stop. Step one, I don't have power to solve this problem. Step two and step three, there is a power. You should turn your life and your will over so that this power can work with you. Four and five, look for the blockages within you, the blockages that keep you from having access to the power that will restore you to sanity. Six and seven, ask for help. Become willing and ask for help for the removal of these because you are beyond mortal aid. You can't repair yourself. It runs too deeply in you, not because there's anything wrong with you, but because you're human and the nature of what you're dealing with is beyond human power. Steps eight and nine, identify the amends that are needed, clean up the behavioral ones, and then move more deeply into the space of your old ideas and beliefs, which are the blockages which keep you from power. Once you're clear, step 10, continue to keep the channel clear by practicing these same principles over and over and over again, but more deeply, at depth, over time. Step 11, deliberately take steps through prayer, meditation, any other useful practices you can come up with to plug back in to power, whatever it may be to make yourself available for it. And then step 12, the pouring forthness, the demonstration of the principles in and through us as we go about living our lives. Here's why a person would do this. In the end, we realize first, we don't have any better options. The things we are struggling with become increasingly problematic over a lifetime unless they're dealt with. They can kill us mostly. They make us suffer. So there's no better option. More importantly, as we begin to take this progressive approach, as I like to call it, this progressive recovery, as the restoration of sanity deepens, we find that there is more and more possible for us than we ever imagined. The real payoff plain old simple pragmatism, there's a lot of evidence that when we clean these things up deeply, we will be restored permanently to sanity, which means our addictions will no longer hinder us. That doesn't mean we will be back in power. It means that the problem will have been sufficiently removed and our lives will continue. So again, this is Ron Chapman. Thanks for listening. I'll make this as broadly available as I possibly can. Please pass it on if you think it will be useful to someone. I look forward to chatting with you at some point in time. Occasionally I do call-ins. You'll find out about them via Seeing True, uh, assuming you check that out. I do a lot of blogging. I also do workshops. Perhaps I'll see you in one of those along the way. Regardless, aim high. Don't settle. There's far more possibility than any of us 
ever even imagined.